welcome to the Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And the two of us are rereading and talking through some of our favourite novels of all time, the Aubrey Matron novel series of the aforesaid Patrick O'Brien. Mike, could you catch us up, please, and give us a hint where we might be headed to this week? Oh, thanks, Ian. I'd love to. Last time in Chapter 4, Jack and Stephen dined with Christy Payet in Toulon. The French thought Stephen acted like a spy, although Jack insisted, gave his word of honor, that he could not be so. France declared war. Stephen dressed Jack as a bear and led him through the mountains to Stephen's castle in Catalan, Spain. Mm-hmm. Ah, now this time Jack and Stephen are back at sea, but a little differently than we've seen them before. There's plenty of action, a dear friend, a gleaming cannon, some fascinating history, more from the Book of Job, a series of setbacks, reflections on Sophia and Diana, and the distinct possibility that the entire bear trip was for nothing. Oh, Lots of moving parts this week, just like always. Uh, let's just go back to the bear trip for a second, Mike, because this this is a, a conversation that keeps on giving, I think, in the online world of O'Brien fandom. We talked a bit about this last week, about, about how maybe there is a, a couple of versions of reality behind this. Uh, we also got a great message from our good friend, Mike Taylor. Mike is on the Patrick O'Brien Appreciation Society, and apart from having a cool first name, um, he's one of our kind of good friends over in Australia. Mike provided a bit more background about the possible genesis of this bear story, or at least another explanation for it. Thank you for all of this, Mike. Let's just share it here with the rest of the listeners. Mike's currently reading The Catalans, another one of the, the non-Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. And having visited the area around Collier, where O'Brien used to live, Mike tells us that he's finding this appreciation and understanding for the writing and what he writes about really gets amplified by that experience. There's a part in the Catalans where the locals are celebrating the end of the grape harvest, the end of the vendange. And there's a party where they all wear masks. And here's a quote from O'Brien's book, The Catalans. The more cheerful souls would change their dress, disguising themselves as pigs, apes and bears, most often bears. Wow. And as Mike goes on to say, maybe even as early as 1953, when the Catalans was published, O'Brien had already picked up, within a few short years of arriving in Collier, this strong sense of the local culture, of Catalan culture, and of the mysticism and around dressing up as animals, and particularly as bears. So as unlikely as it might be to have this scenario of a sailor, Jack Aubrey, wearing a bear skin to escape the French, locals in the area around Collier might not see it that way at all. So maybe this bearskin thing in the Catalans was a little foreshadowing of the device that O'Brien was going to use many, many, many years later in post-caption. So Mike Taylor, thanks very much. That's a really, really great story. And uh, Mike Shank, that's, that's a great kickoff to our episode, I think. Yeah, I love that. Mike, thanks so much. You, you've been cogitating on this for a long time, sharing a lot of thoughts with us, and we really appreciate it. Well, yeah. as this chapter opens, Jack and Stephen come aboard the Lord Nelson and East Indiamen under Captain Spottiswood. We'll come back to the good captain and this ship later with reference to history. But for now, 
we learn that she's been forced into Gibraltar by a severe storm and extensive damage to her rigging. Many of the Lord Nelson's prime seamen were immediately pressed, this being a naval port, uh, hence the desire to skip by it, but I couldn't. There are minor tensions between Captain Spottiswood, who thinks Jack is condescending, and Jack, who's, you know, this is his first time on an East Indiaman in, in his life, first time we've seen him in the canon. And Jack's seeing that they've adopted a number of naval pretensions, but they haven't carried them off very well. But Jack's mood lightens considerably when he realizes that this grinning, nodding, bashful face kind of inside this group of Spottiswood's officers, you know, kind of huddled around is Tom Pooling's. And we remember Ah. Tom Pooling's. We love him. Jack's master's mate, acting lieutenant on the Sophie back in master and commander. And, you know, Pooling's is there beaming at Jack, beaming at Dr. Matron. And Jack interrupts Spottiswood's introductions of his of his officers and addresses Tom. He says, why Pullings, he cried, and all his ill humor, a very slight ill humor in any case, vanishing at once and the hard lines of his face dissolving into a delighted smile. How happy I am to see you. How do you do? Jack explains to everybody that they were shipmates. He shakes Pullings' hand. O'Brien writes, with a force in direct proportion to his affection for the young man. Love it. We love it. We love Pullings. And we love the fact that there's this instant fellowship, this bond between uh, Jack and Tom Pullings. They head off out to sea then, and they're headed back towards England aboard the Lord Nelson. And Pullings gets to sort of strut his stuff a little bit. He shows uh, his former commander, Jack, around the ship. Jack's surprised, since this is an Indiaman, a cargo ship, uh, all of the lumber and the casks and the water butts that are lashed on the decks. And that's going to figure in matters coming up later on in the chapter. So it's a very encumbered deck. It, he's nonetheless impressed by the 20 18-pounders and the six 12-pounders. That's an impressive weight of metal for a merchantman. And he goes on to say, well, how, how many crew members do you have? As Pullings explains to Jack and really, by the way, to us as well, there's 102 that's far below what you'd see in a naval ship. In a navy, you'd expect 124 men for those guns alone with another 100 to trim the sails and work the ship and fire small arms and repel borders. And Jack also notices that some of the crew are Laskers. These are sailors from India or Southeast Asia. And he thinks these weedy little chaps working the big guns doesn't seem like a proposition to him. And they all look blue with the cold. They're wrapped up against the weather as the Englishmen are walking around in shirt sleeves. So Jack realizes he doesn't want to go too far in kind of casting aspersions or making observations because he knows that, that Pullings must feel a connection to the ship as, as any, any good officer would. So he looks around then for a way to give an honest compliment. And we, we get a very subtle little bit of O'Brien humor here. Jack notices this brass larboard side bow gun, gleaming brass. He says, it's quite like gold. And Pulling says, oh yes, the Laskers, these uh, Southeast Asian seamen, polish it voluntarily and regularly say puja, puja, as they polish it and they put wreaths of flowers around it and they say prayers to it. He says, they think it is like, uh, well, sir, I hardly want to name what they think it is like. And Mike, I love this. When, when you look up this word puja, uh, puja is the name for a Hindu act of worship or appeasement to a god with a small sacrifice to an object that is phallic. <laughs> so Pullings is not wrong. And uh, thank you to Anthony Gary Brown in the Patrick O'Brien Guide for the Perplexed. 
this may be the first time, Mike, but it's certainly not the last time we're going to have phallic imagery and metaphor and humor attached to men of the Navy and how they think about their ships. Right. And, and poor Pullings, you know, not being able to talk about this. I, I guess he needs Sigmund Ford to say, well, Tom, sometimes a cannon is just a cannon. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Couldn't help it. Well, Tom invites Jack to his cabin for a drink. And Jack asks Pullings how he came to serve on an Indian man. And Tom says, well, the Admiralty wouldn't confirm Jack's acting lieutenant rating. They told him, we got too many coves like you. Jack says, that's a damn shame. And he's thinking to himself, you know, he's seen pulling in action and knows the Navy doesn't have anything like too many pullings. Well, none of pulling's old captains either had a ship or had a vacancy, it turns out. So Tom took Jack's letter to Captain Seymour on the Amethyst. Ah, Captain said, you know, he would bless the day that he could have obliged Captain Aubrey, and especially with such an advantage to himself by getting somebody as good as Pullings. But he says, I, I don't have room for even one more midshipman. And he takes Pullings to the berth to show him how completely overcrowded it already is. He feeds Pullings an excellent dinner and then says, well, you know, doggone it, I'm, I'm going to do something. And He sits down, writes two letters, gives one to Pullings to take to Mr. Adams at the Admiralty and another to take to Mr. Bowles, his brother-in-law, an influential man at East India House. Mm. So it's it's funny, but it's also quite touching to hear the kind of desperation of all of these officers, Pullings included, just like Jack Aubrey, fishing around for some possibility of advancement, at at least in uh, in the interwar years. And we get another encounter with Iljavi. We remember uh, not that many pages ago that Jack had a very uh, stressful encounter with Lord St. Vincent. This guy Adams had got such an interview for Pullings as a mere acting lieutenant. So we get the story related to us of how Tom had been waiting there at the Admiralty for Lord St. Vincent to show up. There had been this commotion in the hall and this commotion, as Pullings learns afterwards from Adams, had been Lord St. Vincent upbraiding a lieutenant salt a man with eight years seniority who had been putting his own pestering case to the first lord for a place afloat he had sent this man away this lieutenant pressed him sent him away with a file of marine saying you want to go to sea then to sea you shall go sir and in hearing this tale related by pullings jack is aghast he's never heard such a thing in his life and at that moment, we know Pullings has got a bit of a bashful streak in him. So as Pullings finishes off the story, he says, well, I didn't have the heart to stay there and risk the same fate. So he had headed away from the Admiralty, asked the port of the way to East India House, and there this Mr. Bowles had arranged the position for him. And the rest, as they say, was was recent history. And Mike, uh, we're going to talk a lot in this chapter about the authenticity of their writing of some of the naval passages. We had heard in the previous uh, interlude with Lord St. Vincent that as it was described between Jack and Lord St. Vincent was pretty much how it had gone between Thomas Cochrane and Lord St. Vincent. This interview here with Lieutenant Salt with him ending up getting pressed has an echo of historical truth. There was a Lieutenant Salt in the Navy list at some point, but he's not the one who had the dispute with St. Vincent. There was one David Evan Bartholomew, a midshipman turned ashore in 1803, who had written to St. Vincent repeatedly and after the eighth letter Lord St. Vincent had pressed this guy. Upon finding himself at sea again, the guy had been re-rated as midshipman by a a sympathetic and sensible ship's captain. But this episode was used by St. Vincent's enemies in Parliament 
to embarrass him as First Lord. And uh, finally, this guy, Bartholomew, the, the formerly pressed midshipman, was commissioned as a lieutenant in 1805. And once again, thank you to Anthony Gary Brown and the Patrick O'Brien muster book. Paulings you know, appreciates his position on the East Indiaman. He, he yeah. talks to Jack about all its merits, but he says he longs to be on a man of war again. And Jack says, well, it might not be too long because now that Pitt has become prime minister, so ah, those parliamentary elections that Christy Pallier was talking about have happened here. And Jack tells Paulings that Dundas or Lord Melville a man Jack is, as he says, pretty well with, is now First Lord at the Admiralty. Jack says the two of them, Jack and Tom, can probably get a cruise together again. He says it's a real possibility if they can just spread some canvas. They, you know, Jack dearly wants to get home before, as he says, all the plums are gone. Mm. Ah. So here we are back with the regular business of the Lord Nelson. After all this previous damage from the storm, Captain Spotswood's got no particular interest in spreading much of the canvas that Jack Aubrey's longing for. Doesn't even set his top gallant sails, much to Aubrey's disgust. The days are passing very slowly, and Jack is just tending to spend his time on deck, looking at the wake extending behind the ship rather slowly. He doesn't want to see the sails struck down. He finds himself often in the company of these two sisters, both called Miss Lamb, hence the Mrs. Lamb, who are on their way to England under the protection of their uncle, a major hill of the Bengal artillery. Now, these two sisters, the Lamb sisters, ask Jack if the ladies of Spain were indeed as beautiful as the song suggested, but were they not as perhaps as elegant as the ladies of France? And Jack says, he has no idea. When I was in Spain, I didn't see very much of the ladies. He'd been under the care of Dr. Maturin, and he talks up the great role that Stephen had in taking care of Jack. Stephen, meanwhile, appears, and Jack recounts how he'd been telling Miss Susan that the doctor had tried to poison him with his experimental bruise. And this is sort of innocent banter. This is a very Navy type back and forth. But Mike, I'm, I'm already seeing, as we go through this chapter, little items of division potentially arising between Jack and Stephen. And maybe this is the first very low-key one. And probably joining in with a jovial tone, Stephen gets into the conversation. The, the Mrs. Lamb set Stephen straight. Oh, no, that's not actually what Jack Aubrey had said. Captain Aubrey had said just how much they understood what had been done by Stephen for Jack and how much they appreciate the captain and the doctor. Stephen says... He's looking then for the captain. He checks under an empty chair for him and says, I need to tell him that the Laskers are not suffering from a disease from their native air, as the ship's own surgeon had suggested to him, but they're suffering from Spanish influenza, which is soon going to sweep the ship. Mm. So Stephen promises that he's going to give everyone a dose. I, I don't think they had antivirals in 1802, so good luck with that, Stephen. Uh, and he's going to provide a prophylactic bottle for the young ladies and this was almost all being set to rights, I think, when Stephen gets the ultimate Stephen distraction, which is the natural world. Somebody calls out, a whale, a whale. Yeah, the first officer, Mr. Johnston, a former whaler, sees that Stephen is latched onto this whale and asks Stephen you know, where it is. But Stephen's already bent over looking through his telescope, completely not talking to anybody or listening to anybody. Well, Johnston follows Stephen's gaze and then spotting the whale himself says, that whale is no good. It's a fin whale. 
And he talks about how upset he is that there's actually a pot of them. There's all that prime oil out there. No good to man or beast, he declares. And Miss Lucy, one of the lambs, asks why the whale is no good, wondering if it's, in her words, not quite wholesome, perhaps like oysters without an R. <laughs> and for, the, for those of you, and I, I remember thinking this was gospel, you know, oysters are in season once upon a time in the months ending with an R. So you avoided them during the warm weather months of May through August. But I, I've learned that with modern refrigeration, this is now a myth. You can have oysters anytime they're fresh and available. But <laughs> Johnstone says, well, it's no good because it's a fin whale. Miss <laughs> Susan says, I believe my sister meant, why are fin whales no good? And Johnson explains, well, they're huge. They bash boats. They run out all your lines and they tow you under. So, you, you know, you, you lose your life or your lines or both. And he concludes in a very pontifical you know, statement here, which O'Brien writes, which is, as who should say, be humble, flee ambition. Canst thou draw up Leviathan with a hook? Confine thyself to the right whale, thy lawful prey. And I, I, I guess this is something that Johnstone's heard all his life, and it's now taking on biblical proportions here. And, and poor Mrs. Lamb cries, oh, I will, Mr. Johnston. I can promise you I shall never attack a fin whale all my life. So I, I, I love a, a little bit of, of O'Brien humor here. And I love that once again, he's right back at the book of Job in the Old Testament. Job 41, 1 in the King James starts out, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? Now, interestingly, if you go to the last verse, the whole chapter is about Leviathan and a yeah. man who would dare to, you know, to kind of interact with Leviathan. A little suggestion that says, and if you can't mess with Leviathan, would you really mess with God? But mostly a Leviathan, and in I'll, I'll, I'll use the, the NIV translation, in the last verse it says, it looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. Oh. So kind of thinking that one of the reasons you don't mess with this is you'd be a really ambitious person. You know, you're like kind of likely to suffer or do yourself in because of your pride. You're feeling yeah. like you can take this on. And I thought, hmm, wonder if O'Brien is kind of again pointing ahead, pointing ahead here. Don't know. We'll have to watch anybody kind of fall into this position during this book. Well, let's see. Let's see. Meanwhile, we get back with with Jack and his perspective. Jack kind of likes whales, not in the way that a, a whaling man does, but he's okay with whales. He and Pullings, though, unlike the ship's lookout, are actually looking elsewhere. They're looking at a sail that is heading along the darkening western sky. And O'Brien likes sometimes to do these point of view shifts and he's able to give us the benefit of perfect sight kind of out past the horizon. He says that this darkening sail is in fact the Bellon, a French privateer, fast, beautiful, clean bottom with 34 guns. She's a privateer with 260 men aboard. Count them, 260. No coincidence that just a few paragraphs ago we heard that the Lord Nelson only has, what, 100 and something. Her captain, Captain Dumanoir, thinks that the ship that he can see is a 26-gun ship. He thinks maybe she's a man of war. After some time, he decides that she's not being sailed quite like a Royal Navy ship. She's an East Indiaman, the most valuable prize on the sea, as far as he's concerned, maybe apart from a Spanish treasure ship. So he has his crew douse the ship's lights. 
And Mike, there's a little bit of reverse uh, reverse roles here, a bit of tables being turned. All of this stuff about interpreting how another boat sails and figuring out who she really is, that sounds like classic Jack Aubrey. And this whole deception by maneuvering with lights or without lights, again, this sounds like you know, the, the Jack Aubrey slash Cochrane playbook here, except the expert that's running these plays is not our hero. It's the privateer. Yeah. It's funny, Ian. I, I I had the same feeling you had. You know, we spent all of last chapter with Stephen leading, Stephen figuring out what to do. Jack kind of stuck in his bear suit. Then he's laid up sick for two months under Stephen's care. And now, as you say, we're back at sea, but he is not at all in his usual role. So, you know, we've got other people who you know, very clearly painted as Aubrey-like, but, you know, it's not Jack. Well, there's this excellent crew on the balloon. They work through the night and have her just to windward of the Lord Nelson and completely cleared for action before dawn. On the Lord Nelson, the lookout you know, really just feels the loom of a ship and is feeling you know, there's something like a mile away on a parallel course. And he tells Pullings. Pullings immediately climbs halfway up, stares hard for three seconds, and has you know discerned enough through this darkening sky to order the ship prepared for action. And you know O'Brien says he does it just the way he learned on the Sophie. Yeah. Uh, he then wakes up Captain Spottiswood, who confirms Pullings' order. So, I'm getting echoes back to the opening of the movie here as well. You know. Shall, shall we clear for action and the kind of bad visibility and the sinister, sinister, dark form on the horizon? Now, Jack is in his nightshirt. Again, a little bit of an echo of the opening of the movie. And he watches how the privateer is going to cut the Lord Nelson's course in just 15 minutes. He notes that the privateer is coming up with just her topsails alone. So she has speed to burn. He calls her a greyhound after a badger. And he gets the chance to put on his breeches and go find his pistols. And we have a scene that is going to be familiar to us all the way through the canon. But here we are in post-captain being reminded of where Stephen goes when it's time for action. He's down below laying out his surgical instruments and he's asking Jack, what do you make of her? Meaning the, uh, the enemy. He says, Corvette or a damn big privateer. She means business. Mm. And we don't get any sense that Jack is unusually apprehensive but this is clearly a pretty serious situation. Up on deck, we notice that Captain Spottiswood seems to lack decision. But his crew, who were used to the pirates of the South Sea, used to the wicked Malays, used to the Arabs of the Persian Gulf, were not so lacking. Boarding nets were run out, they're trim and taut, the arms chest is open, and at least half of the guns are run out. Which is already a bit of a comfort, seeing as we'd already noticed that the deck is a bit encumbered, and they're short of hands. Jack tells Captain Spotswood that he's at his disposition, and when he sees a bit of hesitation, Jack volunteers to take command of the forward gun division. And the captain, in this rather distracted-sounding air, says, no, I do, do. And Jack then takes Major Hill to the forward 18-pounders. The other gun divisions are pretty well led, with the exception of the bow guns crew, who are answering only to a desperately ill midshipman who's shouting in this rather weak tone. And Mike, the, the, the pace of our anticipation of the action is really stepping up and up here. Yeah, it, it really is. Jack's kind of looking over the guns. He sees, you know, they're modern flintlock pieces. Two are run out, prime cocked and loaded. So I think he's thinking, man, God, these guys are good. But they're, the number one's gun 
has the port lid jammed. Well, Jack works hard with the crew to get it open and they can't. So Jack says, Bowser up, meaning poor whore, you know, right against this port. And with the muzzle on the port, Jack fires it. The powder is damp, so there's this kind of muffled blow, but the port shatters and they tear away the wreckage. Jack is watching the gun crew right back at loading again, and he's, he's pleased that they know their business, and he runs to check on the other guns. Well, he finds that his number five, and it, the crew is is pretty well missing. There's only a few of them. That, you know, he asked their sick one of them near death, and it's very short on supplies. And he's checking this out. A midshipman runs up with the captain's question, why did you fire your gun? And Jack says, tell him I did it to open the port. And please tell him there's nothing like enough 18-pound shot on deck. Well, he runs on to the next you know, gun in his crew, number seven. It's in good shape, and it's being managed by, or you know, the kind of the gun crew captain there is this grizzled European who continues to stare down the barrel, kind of turning away from Jack. And Jack assumes, well, this is some rum seaman who's served with him before and then later deserted. But Jack is very impressed by the trimness of the, his ear and thinks, ah, must have been a quarter gunner. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's great that Jack is looking out for all these signifiers of the Navy, of feeling at home with the naval family. And there seems to be this confidence that the the naval training has given some of these hands. This confidence is kind of pervading some more of the deck. He looks around that there are certainly still many sick men, but the air of kind of frantic anxiety has gone. It looks now more like the deck of a fighting ship. The Ballon now is still standing off, trying to figure out the weight of metal that the Lord Nelson might have at her disposal. Jack thinks... If Spotswood continues to sail the ship like this, the Bellon is going to quickly cross under her stern and rake her. And he decides, that's his affair. That's Spotswood's business. I'm going to confine my world to the guns. And Mike, I guess like lots of us who've ever been in management, uh, he, he likes the feeling, even though he's under stress, he likes the feeling of knowing that he can just subordinate what he's going to do to somebody else. And having been a leader himself, he actually finds it a little bit liberating and calming just to be able to say, I'm going to take care of what's in front of me right here. So he looks around, he works hard to declutter the area around gun number one. And as he moves all these bales and casks around, he realizes he's whistling to himself the adagio from that Hummel piano sonata. And as the text says, he's thinking about Sophia's inept playing, Diana's rough, splendid dash, a jet of intense feeling for Sophia, loving, protective, a clear image of her on the steps of that house. Some fool, Stephen of all people, had said, you could not be both busy and unhappy. Sad. And Mike, that's, that's quite a bit of introspection for Jack. Interesting that we get this confirmation that his heart kind of is in leaning strongly towards Sophie at this point. But it's also interesting that he's willing to label Stephen in his interior monologue as a fool. Right, right. Uh, yeah, oh boy, I'm, I'm so with you. So with you, Ian. Well, Ballone's opening gun cuts his reflection short, and, and it seems to jumpstart Captain Spottiswood, who really hasn't been doing much, and, and he starts giving orders. The Lord Nelson turns, and Spottiswood says, fire as they bear, and Jack thinks to himself, as the text says, that is more like it. The long pause before action was always hard to bear, but now 
In a few seconds, everything would vanish but for the living instant. No sadness, no time for fear. Wow. Well, the firing starts all across the ship, and Jack and Major Hill are, are helping all the, the, the gun crews. They're heaving number five around. Number seven goes off with another poor powder explosion, this damp powder, and, and Jack is really upset here. And he thinks if all the powder turns out to be like this, they might as well just try boarding this privateer now. You know, gunnery is not going to cut it. But he decides uh, perhaps the gunner, he says, the mumping villain, a phrase we'll hear (laughs) again later, just hasn't drawn the guns in the last week. So maybe this will get better. Well, it's it's an exciting moment. The ship's turn to general firing and the larboard guns of the Lord Nelson, 13 of them are now firing in ones and twos every half minute, which is pretty respectable. Meanwhile, the Bellon's 17 guns have had got started with three broadsides in five minutes, which is the kind of rate that Jack would normally aspire to in a frigate. Now they're breaking up into an irregular, uninterrupted roll of fire. Smoke would normally prevent Jack from seeing what's going on but twice through gaps in the smoke, he sees his crew's shots go home. But the Ballon has closed the distance, and he realizes that actually that the Ballon's guns are no heavier than eight-pounders, and she's trying actually to tear the sails and rigging of the Indiaman to pieces rather than damage her valuable hull. And he realizes that this means that there's going to be closure and boarding quite soon. So if the Lord Nelson doesn't hit her hard and quickly, the end of this action could be coming up sooner than everybody thinks. And Mike, we, we get a, a huge interruption to our time in Jack Aubrey's point of view here. There's an enormous ringing crash inside Jack's head. He's down, but he realizes he's not badly wounded. Number seven gun had exploded, killing three of its men. And in a, a rare piece of really graphic uh, action writing here, O'Brien explains how it had blown the head off of the gun captain and part of this guy's jaw had been what gouged this wound across Jack Aubrey's forearm and meanwhile bits of iron from the exploding gun grazed his head and knocked him down. Pullings looks into his face and tells him he must go below and meanwhile offers to help him up. Yeah, Jack all of a sudden, you know, kind of realizing this is Pullings, here's what he's saying. He comes back fully to life and he cries, secure that gun! And he, you know, the text kind of explains that Jack hears it as if it had come from somebody else's throat. Um, They do secure number seven. They take all of its supplies off to number five. And O'Brien tells us that these, you know, the the guns are continuing to fire right next to him. These bursting hammer blow explosions ringing in his ear. And O'Brien goes on to say the bursting gun, the dead men, his own wound all merge into the din and the furious activity of battle. Well, the Ballone is much closer now. Jack's gun crews are firing faster. The Ballone fires grape and discharges musketry. You know, she's she's backing her way, using small arms to try and clear the Lord Nelson's deck as her men swarm on the yard arms, you know, getting ready to lash the ship's spars together. And others in the waist there are trying to prepare grappling iron. So as you said, Ian, this is imminent now. It really is. Spotswood can see this happening too. He orders all hands to be ready to repel boarders. The ships come together. The Frenchmen give a cheer and they start slashing away at the boarding netting. Jack 
like lets off a pistol shot at a man who's coming through the number seven gun port. He grabs a great heavy crowbar and O'Brien describes his feeling very, very viscerally, an extraordinary feeling of strength and invulnerability, complete certainty as Jack flings himself at the men who are in the netting, trying to come down over the bows. This is the main attack. He beats and thrusts men down with his crow. There are shrieking Laskers on either side, fighting with pikes and axes and pistols. There's a rush of company men who manage to clear the gangway and move to the forecastle where this big fight is going on. And they're now charging with pikes. The Indiaman's deck actually sits at a higher level than Bologna's by, by the height of a, a decent spring, a decent man's jump. And since the Bilon slides slope deeply inwards, there's an awkward space in between the two ships. There are men there clinging desperately, trying to come aboard. There are crowds, meanwhile, on the uh, Lord Nelson rushing forward. And the heave of the sea separates the ships. A group falls between them. They're blasted away by Mr. Johnson's blunderbuss. The lashings are cut. The grappling irons fall off. And the quarterdeck guns of the Lord Nelson fire three rounds of grape wounding the French captain, unshipping his wheel and cutting her spanker halyards. And Mike, this is now really, really finely poised here. However, if only the Lord Nelson had enough men to repel borders and fight the guns, she could possibly now have raked the Boulogne at 10 yards range. But as it is, they don't have the hands, no shot is fired, and the ships in this kind of odd stalemate drift silently apart. We go back to the point of view of Jack Aubrey. He picks up this boy, a ship's boy, both arms slashed to the bone and carries him down to the cockpit. So we get a quick check-in with Stephen. Jack tells Stephen that they've beaten off the borders so far, but the Belon's boats are picking up men. They have two or three hundred and they'll be back again at it soon. Stephen says, well, right here, I have 30 to 40 wounded men. Meanwhile, Jack, show me your arm and your head. And Jack says, I don't have time for that. Another time, a couple of lucky shots and we could disable him. So, Mike, although I think we started out this fight believing that the fight between these two ships was uneven and weighted in the favor of the French privateer, maybe there's a chance. Maybe it's a case of so far, so good. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, Jack's certainly feeling that way. He's up on deck. He's praying for a lucky shot. He only has two guns left firing, and he can't see through the thick smoke, so he's not sure exactly the impact. His crews and the whole deck have thinned and their fire has slackened to a gun a minute. And, you know, I was in my own head going, wait, we had 102, we got 30 or 40 wounded. We've got some dead. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'll bet it has. And Jack looks up and and this is clear. There's only a sparse line of men on deck. Some are wounded. Some have run below because they hadn't laid the hatches. So people could, you know, just run away when they were afraid. The ones left, Jack says, are drawn, ashy, weak, and drained. They look like they're fighting without conviction. And then Jack realizes that he has no shot, and apparently the powder boy has run. So one of these powder boys that was serving his guns, no longer to be seen. Huh. So maybe discipline is breaking down. Maybe the crew is starting to thin out here. Interestingly... to, to use our well-worn phrase, Mike, we should stick a pin in this next encounter because it feels slightly absurd that we focus on a conversation between Jack Aubrey and a ship's boy. So there's this boy who comes up from below, waddling from the main hatch with two heavy balls clasped in his arms. A new boy, says the text, absurdly dressed in shore-going rig, new trousers, blue jacket, pigtail, inner ribbon, a fat boy, 
Jack screams at him to take balls from forward, calling him a poxed son of a whore as he snatches one ball from him, loads it, and turns back to the boy's mute, appalled face. We're back into Jack's POV now as he points to number one gun and says, take balls from the dozen that are piled there at the double. He fires the gun and he sees Hill snatch up this plump little boy from the recoil. Jack, in turn, picks the boy up and says, stand clear of the guns. You're a good boy, Pluckton. Just bring one at a time. He says they also need cartridge, but it never comes. Hmm. Slightly odd little dialogue there with this plump boy, this unusual boy. We might come back to that later. Right. What's happening next with the rest of the action here, Mike? Well, Jack sees the balloons four yards glide into the Lord Nelson shrouds, and he hears the roaring of borders behind him. And he's thinking, behind him? Wait, wait, I'm looking at the ships coming together in front of me. It turns out the privateer's boats had come around in the smoke, and a hundred Frenchmen are coming up the unprotected starboard side, filling the waist, cutting off the forecastle from the quarterdeck. There's such a great press of men. They're, they're too close now for Jack to even fight. He can't get his bar free. Jack is knocked down. He's kicked. He gets up. He moves back. He's tripping over bodies. And the text says, and then a falling void. An impact faintly, faintly heard as though from another age. Wow, Mike. It- if it wasn't for the fact that we can see this is still only halfway through the chapter, I'd be thinking, ah, cliffhanger. Right, right. <laughs> but it's a great bit of cinematic writing. Okay, boom, we've had all this action, 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 and now the void for Jack Aubrey. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, this is post-Captain. We're still only one and a third books in. We, we don't know. We don't know what's going to become of Jack Aubrey. There's jeopardy and to spare for Jack Aubrey in this really, really grim situation. So, Mike, while we uh, ponder on the cliffhanger, perhaps this is a good time to go and get some refreshment. So, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. Hope you got a little bit of refreshment there. We're going to start with a historical note. We would have said this earlier about Captain Spottiswood, except that we didn't want to give away the outcome of the first part of this chapter here. Robert Spottiswood was indeed the master of the real Indian man, Lord Nelson, when she was taken by the balloon on August 14th, 1803. So a real action located in history, one that I'm sure O'Brien researched a great deal. Very cool. And it's funny, Mike, I, I remember reading this and being skeptical, as we said way back in one of our earlier episodes, skeptical that there could have been an Indian man already named Lord Nelson as early as 1802, 1803, but there absolutely was. Nelson had been ennobled for his part at the Battle of the Nile. And uh, this, is, this all absolutely checks out. Great job, Patrick O'Brien. Now, um, in a slightly sort of adventure story mode, we go straight back with the hero who comes to watching a swinging lantern. He, may, he thinks, well, maybe I've been watching this lantern for hours and the world gradually falls back into place around him. His memory starts to come back. He can't quite remember the sequence after the bursting of poor Haynes's gun. And by the way, Mike, that means that he can't remember all of this business with the, the shot and taking them from forward and the boy and so on. He's realizing that 
he knows the name Haynes of the grizzled European that had been at the uh, at the gun that blew up. This guy Haynes had been a quarter gunner, served with Jack on the Resolution way back in earlier in Jack's career. The rest of Jack's memory, though, is darkness, and he sees Stephen now moving about among the bodies and calls out to him. Stephen comes over and says, how do you find yourself? How are your intellectuals? And Jack says, pretty well, I thank you. I seem all of a piece. And by the way, this, this is another phrase from our favorite bit of Dryden. And uh, Google Engram confirms that this phrase, all of a piece, really peaked at about the time of Dryden's verses, some decades before this actually uh, all took place dropping down by 1800. So this is another nice little Easter egg for O'Brien to take us back to the world of Dryden. Stephen says that all of Jack's limbs and his core are sound. Stephen's only fear had been that Jack might have fallen into a coma, having fallen down the forehatch. He gives Jack an Almoravian draft and says that they didn't find half of his supply, which Mike raises a few questions in my mind. Almoravian what now? And who didn't find half of what? So do you want to help us out with the Almoravian thing? Yeah, Almoravian, I, you know, and I can only help us so far here. It's a name that comes from the Berber dynasty, the dynasty that ruled much of North Africa and Spain from about 1056 to 1145 per Dean King's A Sea of Words. But in all the references that I checked and all my usual go-tos, I couldn't find what it was or what it treated. None of them had any idea either. Just a lot of question marks <laughs> afterwards. But, it, but it's a cool sounding name, right? Right. So when Stephen says they didn't find half of his supply, who, who's the they, Mike? What's really going on here? Well, Jack asks, you know, what they, have, have we been taken? And Stephen says, yeah, yeah, we were taken. We lost 36 men. We were plundered cruelly. We were kept under hatches the first few days until... Stephen says he removed a ball from their captain's back and treated their wounded. So, mm. you know, little little good uh, faith now between them. And he says their second captain, Azema, is an amiable man, a former king's officer, and he has prevented any gross excess after the plundering. So, with the, in in lieu of the plundering, and Jack says, "Well, how about the lambs?" You know, Stephen says, "Well, they're dressed as boys," and and I love O'Brien's sex here. Stephen says, "I'm not." sure that they were altogether pleased with the success of their deception. Now, Jack asks about the prize crew. It's 46, too big to consider retaking the ship. And the officers, Stephen says, have given their parole. And some of the Laskers, the ones who are not down with the flu, have taken service for the French. They're getting paid by both sides now. The crew, Stephen says, is carrying them into the Spanish port of Coruña. Jack is glad, though, thinking, ah, the chops of the channel and westward. They're going to have to travel through that. And that is likely to be filled with English cruisers. Great hope. But we're a long way from there yet, of course. And it gets to Tuesday and Jack is still looking out at the empty sea from the quarter deck of the Lord Nelson. He isn't as sure as he once was now that they'll be rescued. This prize crew situation seems all pretty stable. It seems like everybody's starting to give up hope. He remembers coming back from the West Indies one time along the busiest of the sea routes, not seeing any ships until they reached the Lizard, just off the coast of Cornwall. There's Pullings, who's recovered from being wounded by grape shot and from a sword wound. He comes on deck, supported on each side by one of the Mrs. Lamb. And Jack takes one of the ladies by her free hand and says, My dear Miss Lamb, 
I hope I see you well, quite well, meaning not too much raped, which, 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 which is funny if it wasn't grim. And she says slightly awkwardly, I think that she and her sister are quite well. And the French privateer captain, Captain Azema, comes over. He's very courteous. We, we start to think of him as a little bit sympathetic. He bows, greets the ladies, tells Jack that the Mrs. Lamb are under his protection. He's persuaded them to wear dresses again, since none of his men, even without his protection, would disrespect such heroines. And this rings a little bit false with Jack, who doesn't quite understand. Pulling says, well, they're copper-bottomed heroes for carrying all the powder, march and wads about during the battle. And Jack cries, did they carry powder? And now we learn what was going on. In that spell that we heard about with the boy, but that Jack had managed to wipe from his memory. Miss Susan called Jack a horrid two-faced thing. She says, he, Jack, saw her sister and shouted the most dreadful things. He'd sworn at her sister. You know you did. Oh, Captain Aubrey, fie. Here's, here's a little reveal for somebody who's on deck here. Captain Aubrey observes Azema and he mentally tots up the fact that his uh, his prize and his ransom funds are now increased because he has an English officer amongst the prize money count. And Jack thinks, oh, yeah, I've blown the gaff. I'm brought by the Lee. But he's, he starts making amends to do here with the Mrs. Lamb, right? Yeah. Well, Jack says carrying powder is an amazing spirited thing to do. He humbly begs the lambs to forgive him, saying that the last half hour of the action, a pretty warm action, he adds, is a perfect blank for him because he fell on his head. He honors them for their actions. He asks for their forgiveness. And he asks them to please tell him what he said so he may unsay it at once. Miss Susan <laughs> says, well, she forgets his exact words, but they were monstrous. And before she can go on, there's a sound of a gun close by and all of them stop talking and pivot towards the balloon, which is quickly making sail. Well, Captain Dumanwab over on the balloon hails them and tells them to head straight for Coronia as he goes off to check out a strange sail and either fight or lead them astray if they're an enemy. He doesn't want to lose this valuable Indianman prize. However, the Lord Nelson is short on supplies so it can't repair some of its sails and rigging. Its pumps have never stopped running since the action, and it can only make four knots even with this topgallant sail set. But in two minutes, the swift balloon is two miles away. So, ah, you know, let me let me get out of the vicinity of the Indian. Let me find out what this other ship that I can see over on the horizon is, and we'll take it from here. Yeah, and we've gone from Jack Aubrey hoping to encounter English cruisers to the pesky balloons been, has been and found yet another prize. But maybe there's a little bit of hope here in the fact that the Bellon and the Lord Nelson are now separated by a stretch of water. Up Jack goes then into the top. There's a privateersman in the top there. It turns out this is one of the guys to whom Jack had given a really terrible blow during the boarding action, but there's no grudge born here. And he turns and tells Jack, it's one of thy frigates down there. And Jack, from where he is now, can see her. She has 38 guns. She's flying a red pennant. She adds sail and she alters course to close with the Bellon, then sees the Indiaman and alters course to find out some more about her. Seeing this, the Bellon tacks rather clumsily. She takes an age to come about and Jack hears the prize crew laughing on the deck below. I think they're expecting, Mike, that they 
frigate here is going to encounter the Milan and maybe there's going to be some more prize taking by the French before the day is out. The frigate, though, stays on course until she's a mile from the Lord Nelson. She fires a gun and breaks out the Red Ensign. Now, maybe Jack Aubrey's hopes can begin to rise again. This is one of the cruisers that he was hoping for. Maybe. Jack thinks, well, maybe if it was me, I would have tried the French or the American flags first to give it the Cochrane touch. But the Bellon, meanwhile, shows her French colours and passes as a national enemy ship to lead the frigate away. The lookout chuckles to himself. He's watching this just as closely as Jack is. Jack knows what the frigate captain was thinking. He's thinking that the merchant ship could be a prize, but he doesn't know what kind. And there's a poorly handled French corvette crossing his bow, three quarters of a mile away, peppering him with random shot. So the frigate hauls her wind, turns to pursue the Bellon, clearly planning to deal with the Bellon first and then come back to check on this hypothetical merchant prize later. And Jack can see the deception that the Bellon is playing here. He says to himself, surely to God you must see that she's spilling her wind. So the Bellon is successfully keeping just out of reach of the frigate's chasers. And in fact, they keep sailing away until they are both just flecks of white on the horizon. And this seems like Jack's moment of hope is now gone. As he starts to climb back down the rigging, the seaman gives him what we learn as a, a compassionate philosophical nod, as if to say, this has happened to him before. It was happening to Jack now. It was one of the little miseries of life. <laughs> and Mike, this, this sounds like some things that we've seen before in other places, right? Yeah, you know, I, I, you know I'm thinking in, in a comparable movie today, the line might be, hey, it's not personal, it's just business. But, yeah. you know, I think that's a far different attitude than what's going on here. And this compassionate and philosophical side, as O'Brien says, perhaps this kind of thinking accounts for some of the honor and respect that opposing officers give each other. To, to me, the comparable line might be, here by the grace of God go I, or there by the grace of God go I, or maybe, hey, on an uncertain sea, all our roles may be reversed tomorrow. So kind of a variation on the golden rule. Now, we've seen that so many times. Well, we'll see that so many times amongst officers. But it's clearly at this point a tradition that Napoleon trampled on when he rounded up the English citizens at the start of this book. So we were not just, you know, combatants to combatants. And maybe a thread that runs between a little tension between Jack and others in this chapter. Oh, good point. Good point. Now, the day wears on and night falls, at which point Captain Azema alters course, never to be seen by the frigate again. Again, Mike, we've got all all of the wiles and seamanship and navigational chops of Cochrane being portrayed to the benefit of the French privateer here. Jack realises that La Coruña lies ahead on this very slow journey, and now that Jack is known to be an officer, he's never going to be let ashore in Spain, but instead is going to be held in irons until his valuable carcass is carried to France. And and by the way, since he was so excited about setting more canvas and getting home in time for picking up a plum, this must be a real heart sink moment for him. Now, They have two days where the sea is a total void. But finally, on Friday, the sea is full of sails. A fleet of fishermen, bankers who are bringing codfish from Newfoundland. There are a number of other trade vessels. There's a bean cod, a Portuguese fishing vessel. And this all means that the coast must be nearby. Even so, Jack and Pulling's attention is drawn elsewhere. It's drawn to a cutter 
that's steering an erratic course in the midst of these ships. So, Mike, I think we're seeing here this cutter might well be English. We know that the cutter is a rig, uh, a style of ship often used by the Navy and by privateers and by smugglers. Fast, nimble and weatherly. She puts up a gaff topsail, which is a modern sail not often used by the Navy. She, we think then, is a privateer. Captain Azema clearly shared that view. He has the guns drawn and run out on both sides as the cutter works her way up slowly into the eye of the wind. So, another turning of the turning of the turning of the tables, maybe. Right, right. Well, as the cutter gets closer, they all see that she's had a rough time of it not long ago. You know, the mainsail's double-reefed with strangely patched holes. Her upper works have a chewed appearance. A gun port has obviously been hastily repaired. But Azeba still rigs out new boarding netting, gets out a great deal of cartridge, and shot. The cutter fires a gun and raises English colors. Azema mm-hmm. says, you know, I'm not going to send, you know, he's looking at Jack and Pullings, I'm not going to send you two below, but if you hail or signal, I'll shoot you. He's smiling, but Jack notices he has two pistols in his belt. The Lord Nelson turns gently and fires, putting new holes into the cutter sails and knocking away a third of her bowsprit. The cutter tries to fill and come about, but it has so little way that she cannot stay. She falls off, fires her seven six-pounders, and wears around on another tack. She crosses the Lord Nelson's stern, fires again, and jibes. O'Brien writes, G-Y-B-E-S, like a dancer. And I think, Ian, wait, jibes? That sounds like something I know, but I haven't <laughs> seen this kind of word before. Tell us about jibing here. Yeah, so in, in, a, in a squaring ship, when you change direction by pointing the boat away from the direction of the wind, that's called wearing. And it's actually in a squaring ship. It's a very calm maneuver. It's a very safe, low-risk maneuver. But in a rig like this cutter has, where you have a gaff at the top of the sail and a boom at the bottom of the sail, if you change direction with the wind going behind you, it has the same effect as wearing, but you do this maneuver called jibing, where the boom flips over from one side to the other. And if you do it without taking care and without being under control, it can be risky. If you can do it well, and it's all about timing and control of the rig and picking your moment, if you can do it well, it can be a really efficient way of rapidly turning. And uh, it's a maneuver that racing boats use a lot in pre-start maneuvers. And I can just imagine this boat quickly, elegantly, with great seamanship, jibing. I, I don't know, though, why she was described as having having done a wearing maneuver just a few sentences before, but never mind. I, I love the image of her jibing like a dancer. Meanwhile, she comes in close. Her six powders cut up the Lord Nelson's rigging, and it looks like the cutter intends to carry on this way. Now, Azema swings the Lord Nelson through 90 degrees. He walks down the line, speaking to each gun crew, and sends a deliberate broadside right to the space where the cutter had been only two seconds earlier. Now, as if by magic, the cutter's master puts her helm hard a lead just at the moment of the call to fire and heads in toward the Lord Nelson. So we've got dancing manoeuvres here, really, really tight manoeuvring, close quarters manoeuvring, and so far, this cutter is still in the fight and doing well. This manoeuvring happens again, and the cutter's closing in and seems to be preparing to board. But Mike, time for another turning of the tables here. No, no. I think Azema's finally kind of figured out what's going to happen again. So he fires this time. And this time, after the smoke clears, the cutter's topsail hangs drunkenly over her side. 
There's no captain at the tiller and a heap of men struggling or motionless on the deck. She just carries past the Lord Nelson and then starts, as, as people are kind of getting back together, starts to race away. She survives the next broadside, and Azema fires a few more kind of nonchalantly, but lets her get away, has no great interest in sinking you know, or destroying her. Wow. So, Mike, it, it seems like that action is now all over. We had high hopes that something might come of it, but the cut is now out of sight. Two days pass by, and we sight another sail. And this time it turns out to be a brig that's clearly chasing the Lord Nelson. The breeze freshens as the hours pass, and Azema sets the royals, the highest set of sails above the top gallants, and is trying to see whether the mast will stand the strain to see if the Lord Nelson can indeed make more than five or six knots in this fresh breeze. If they hold, that could be good news for him. He can outrun the brig. And to begin with, the brig appears to be falling behind. Pullings has been up aloft. He comes down from the top and tells Jack that he thinks the brig is a vessel called the Seagull, a ship that his uncle served in as master that he knows well. And this bit of intelligence is intriguing to Jack. Had she changed over to carronades, he asked. Pulling says, well, yeah, she did. 16 24-pounders along with two long sixes. And if you're doing mental long multiplication like I am, you might have figured out that that weight of metal sounds like it could be competitive with the broadside power of the Lord Nelson, now commanded by the, uh, the privateer Azema. The seagull then can hit hard, but only if you can get near enough. And she, like the Lord Nelson, is amazingly slow. She's just set her sky sails. So Mike, now we have a contest once again. Yeah. So, you know, the difference that the sails make on the seagull is small, but it's enough to bring her close enough to be reached by some of the Lord Nelson's long gunfire in five hours. You know, for 10 miles, the seagull cannot bring her guns into action. But then the Lord Nelson reaches a dark band in the sea where the wind coming off the Spanish mountains and an ebbing tide produce a, a really badly tempered choppy zone and the Lord Nelson's way falls off. The seagull comes up and fires her first full broadside. They fall short, but one ball tears through the Lord Nelson's hammocks, drops on the deck, and Captain Azema examines this heavy ball. He knows that if he loses just 50 more yards, these things are going to be dropping all around him. However, he thinks the seagull's rate of fire and accuracy are not very good, and he has eight master gunners on board. He only has to knock away a spar or two to leave this ship behind. He knows he needs to concentrate, so this time he sends Jack and the rest of the English prisoners down into the hold. Well, it's a great storytelling move by O'Brien because he, he knows we could get a bit tired of some of the cliches of being up, and cl up close in first-person terms with the action. So it's a really fascinating change of perspective for our heroes to be down deep in the hold of the ship, to become oral witnesses, as you might say, to the action. They can hear really well, so they try to calculate the direction of who is where. They try to calculate the weight of metal being exchanged here. 432 pounds for the Lord Nelson, 392 for the Seagull, and they calculate the chances that each ship might have of bringing their broadsides into play. And they speculate on the meanings of the different sounds they can hear. They cheer when there's a clear hit by the Seagull, especially when they hear the well and the pump start working, suggesting that the Lord Nelson has taken some damage below the waterline. 
At 3 a.m., so deep in the dark of the night, their candle goes out, and all they can do is listen in the darkness. There's still a steady rhythm of firing. It goes on for hours. Jack speaks to Pullings and to Major Hill and realises that they're asleep. He finds that his own calculations about the number of shots that have been fired are mingling in his head with the numbers of Stephen sick and wounded uh, and with observations that he's made to Sophia and his thoughts turn to food. And he's, again, he's thinking about playing the, what he calls the D minor trio with Diana. And Mike, th- this little interlude began with Jack falling down a hatchway and we get another change of perspective now as the grating is opened and we're looking up out of a hatchway. Yeah, the light floods in and Jack realizes that he's been, you know, kind of three quarters asleep for some time. But but he remembers that he did note that the firing had stopped in the last hour or so. Well, on deck, it's raining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ryan with the raining. There's just a little breeze, a land breeze. Mm, that doesn't bode well. Might be getting close to the Spanish coast. Here we are. Captain Azam and his people are deathly pale and tired, but the Lord Nelson is slipping away from the motionless seagull, which has clearly suffered badly. She's hauled off to refit, and Jack thinks about, you know, what's the likelihood of her being able to renew this action when Azama fires a gun that he's been carefully aiming, sending a ball right into the middle of the repairing party, before stepping back to his mug of hot coffee. And this this doesn't set well with Jack. No. And we've talked in general terms about Jack and his notion of gallantry and seamanship. And more and more, I think we're seeing here that Azema is not the same as Jack. He's got a streak of cold-hearted, callous cruelty about him. Jack knows that, according to what you might call the strict rules of war, it's perfectly allowable. It might even be something that Jack, in some circumstances, could have done himself. But done in this way, at this moment, it seems so cold-blooded that Jack actually refuses the offered draft of coffee from Azema's mug. He looks around the ship at the damage to the Lord Nelson. He looks across at the coast. He sees that Azema has actually not quite made the landfall that he'd hoped but they'll be in Corunia, in the roads of Corunia, by around noon. And Jack ignores the second gun and tries to understand why it would wound him so to see this act of kind of cold-blooded cruelty towards the crew of the seagull when he thinks he has no particular friends on the seagull. And we get a little insight into the thinking of Jack here. The text says, He could not clarify his mind, but he knew he felt the most furious enmity for Azema, and it was with more than the ordinary leap of delight of hope revived when all seemed lost that he saw the first ship round that Spanish headland heading north, a homeward-bound line of battleship, HMS Colossus, followed by the Tonnant at 80. The masthead hailed two ships of the line, but two more followed, a very powerful squadron, all sails abroad and holding the weather gauge. There was not the slightest chance of escape. Mute, weary consternation. And in the silence, Jack stepped to the pointed 18-pounder, laid his hand on the lock and said coldly, you must not fire that gun, sir. You must strike your colours to the brig. End of chapter five. Wow. Wow. Well, before we jump in to think 
about this chapter some more. One more historical note, which we couldn't talk about earlier without giving away the chapter here. Earlier, we established that Spottiswood was the actual master of this actual ship named for Horatio Nelson. But it turns out that after being taken by the balloon, the ship was in fact immediately pursued by a small English privateer named Thomas and John, and then by HMS Seagull, an 18-gun brig. So here we are. The Seagull was indeed damaged by the Lord Nelson's heavier broadside, but just kept hounding her long enough until a powerful squadron led by Sir Edward Pellew's HMS Tonnant came into sight. The Seagull's captain then had the honor of accepting the Lord Nelson's surrender. So in fact, (laughs) everything we've been reading about pulled right from the pages of history. And a a great example of O'Brien using actual naval engagements in all the naval scenes in his early books, as he promised in his foreword to Master and Commander. Right. And don't they work well? It's certainly true that he's piled up the action here. And this multiple engagement, disengagement, re-engagement kind of running fight that the captured Lord Nelson has gives us the opportunity for lots of backwards and forwards, lots of raising and kind of lowering of tension, and this great payoff at the end when the squadron comes around the headland. Now, if any reader had felt so far that post-captain had had too much time ashore and not enough action, well, I think this chapter has taken care of that. Although I, I think there's been plenty of action, even though none of it was ships chasing or firing each other. We've had all of the, the traveling across France, and we've had the bears, and we've had all the action ashore as well. Well, but anyway, <laughs> you know, I, I almost suggest that there's been plenty of chasing and outmaneuvering and firing at each other, but it's been by our main characters, these right. men and women, not by ships. But. Indeed, by their metaphorical <laughs> cannon rather than their physical cannon. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. right. <laughs> yeah. So if you had been in this book hoping for heavy ordnance, then you got it in spades in this chapter. And really interestingly, we've had all these battles and Jack Aubrey was not in charge. And Mike, we've talked about this before. Patrick O'Brien resists the cliche of putting his hero in the battles. He resists the cliche of always telling the story of these battles from the perspective of a commander, especially a commander on the victorious side. So O'Brien started this way and he's he's clearly going on in the same vein. Yeah. You know, I, I was fascinated by thinking back in the chapter that that privateer who was the lookout, his outlook, that, you know, compassionate philosophic nod to Jack again, proves to be prescient. You know, by the yeah. time this chapter is over, he, the lookout on, on the Lord Nelson, is now the victim of one of life's little miseries, just when he thought, and like Azema thought, the privateer had won again. And, and I love how, as you say, O'Brien has managed the tension. All these multiple near losses conditioned us to believe that the seagull, like all the other potential rescuers, is certainly not going to succeed. But just when the privateer thinks she's got it all done and is the, you know, these cold-blooded shots into the seagull, these other ships come around the corner. And this time, perhaps that privateer lookout is like Jack climbing down the tower knowing he's lost. But, yeah. ah, the uncertainty of the sea. Just think that if that squadron had not come around that corner at that time, Jack's entire bear trip would have all been for naught. He still would have spent the war in a French prison after all. And it would have been a very different story. Right. Now, like, there's been some interesting twists and turns, I think, overall here in Jack Aubrey's character arc. We've, we've had quite a bit for Stephen, maybe you'd say, in the previous chapter. 
But we've seen something, I think, unfolding in this dialogue between Captain Nazema, who initially starts out as quite a kind of simpatico character, between yeah, Nazema... Yeah, after Jack's own heart, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Kind of congenial, philosophical, gentlemanly Frenchman. But actually, as we go through the story, we get a little bit deeper. We get a, a, a more nuanced situation than simply Jack Aubrey's a gentleman and he gets on well with Frenchmen who are also gentlemen. Azema is not the kind of funny, good-natured, piratical guy. He's got this cold heart to him. And along the way of observing that, we get Jack Aubrey being endowed with some of the, the some high moral status, you might say. Jack Aubrey finds that actually he's above people like Azema in terms of the quality of his morals. He's got this profound distaste for what he ultimately sees as a cruel and dishonest form of warfare. And he gets quite chilled and turned off by it. And Mike, without going too far into spoiler territory, I'm looking ahead to the next couple of chapters and with Jack Aubrey on a higher moral plane and dissatisfied with dishonest forms of warfare, I wonder where that's going to lead him and Stephen Maturin. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. We've had so much role reversal between the two of them now. And Stephen certainly has always been the guy that wants to do no harm. Is is this kind of thing going to be another bit of reversal? And, and I keep wondering to myself, so this was a fascinating chapter, this whole line of actions. But I, at the end, I'm thinking, so where does this leave our heroes and, and the other main characters in the book? Jack believes his chances at the Admiralty are better with Lord Melville, his first lord if they can get there before all the good ships have been given away. But clearly, they aren't making any progress quickly here. Jack seems to be sure of his love for Sophia, but Diana still keeps entering his thoughts. And despite the protest that Jack had earlier made to Christy Pallier about Sophia versus Diana, but saying that he felt himself kind of in honor, completely attached to the promises he's made Diana. So now if he's back on the moral pie ground, where does that leave us? What about Stephen and Diana? What about the potential rivalry that we've been seeing these sparks between Jack and Stephen? If Jack isn't back with Sophia, if they return to England, what's going to happen there? Can Stephen live up to Jack's high code of morals and warfare now that he's a active intelligence agent? And we've seen kind of more of a... You know, pretty uh, intense side of him as he's making his way through those mountains with Jack. What if Jack's debt, you know, he left because he's going to go get thrown in prison. What if he gets back and he can't get a ship? What about before he gets a ship, if he gets a ship at all? And, and I'm wondering myself, gosh, this has been months and months and months. What's been happening to Diana and Sophia this whole time? I mean, I got, you know, the list goes on and on, all these questions. Mike. The question's piling up before us, but plenty of chapters still to come. So looking ahead, what do you say next week to just a little bit more of this excellent Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I should like that of all things.
time he fires. So he's he's going through a little incantation of the uh, of, of the Episcopal liturgy, or no, I should say, sorry, it's an incantation <laughs> of the Anglican liturgy. Sorry, well, the there you go, Sam. Good try. Good try. <laughs>